My text this morning is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, beginning at verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any who, any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is tied together with the sermon from last week. Last week I mentioned that the gospel is that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. We can't do it. We can't raise the dead. We can't open the eyes of the blind. We can't change the heart. We can't heal the sick. But we can point them all to the one who receives sinners and sets them free. The Pharisees in that context were the ones that threw stumbling blocks in the way. Constantly critiquing, constantly throwing up stumbling blocks to keep people away from the mercy of Christ. Whereas Jesus makes the path smooth. He forgives freely. He doesn't set up demands. He has the power to take away the curse, and that is exactly what he is doing. In the conflict of the Pharisees, Jesus is warning us of the same spirit of the Pharisees in this chapter. Like the older brother of a few chapters ago, resenting those who find freedom in Christ resenting God for welcoming and receiving sinners like Cain who murdered Abel because Abel was received and Cain was not. The Pharisees in their thinking acted just like this. And so they were striving merely to be good slaves. And Jesus closes that section with reminding them if our striving to be good slaves, even if it were possible for us to do everything perfectly, all we would have done is simply our duty. Jesus' mission, though, was to cleanse us and make us obedient, beautiful children, sons and daughters. So now to illustrate what he's teaching, he heals these ten lepers. Remember that he's on his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And he's passing through a region that's sort of a no man's land. It's between Galilee and Samaria. It's a place where the outcasts of society are gathering, neither Samaritan nor Galilean, in between those that have been cast out, the beggar's camp. And there he sees ten lepers. A leper was one with a disease of the skin. It's not the same disease that we call leprosy today. It wasn't fatal, but it was painful. But worse than that, it made you an outcast in Israel. And that's crucial to understand. To put it in the context of the law of Moses in Leviticus 13, Moses says, As for the person who has the leprous infection, 
His clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and call out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. He shall live outside the camp. We don't know how long these ten have been outcasts. But they are used to crying out, outcast, unclean. It says they do not even approach Jesus. They shout at him from afar, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They use the term master. It's different than the normal rabbi or sir. Rabbi or sir or even Lord was a term of respect, like we would say mister. This is a different word. This is a word that inferiors use towards their superiors. They're acknowledging that they're completely at the mercy of Christ. They're desperate. They're poor. They have no hope. They have no resources. The only thing that will give them hope is if Jesus has mercy on them. And this illustrates what I was speaking of last week. We can't heal the blind. We can't raise the dead. We are all outcasts and unclean. And so Jesus warns all of us against casting snares and traps in front of people. The Pharisees would not allow a sinner to come close to them for fear of being unclean themselves. They guarded the door to the kingdom, as Jesus put it, so that they didn't enter themselves, but they would not allow anyone else to enter either. But the truth of Scripture is that at the bottom, we're all lepers. If Jesus didn't receive sinners, none of us would be here. All of us are outcasts and unclean. The backdrop of all of Scripture is exile from Eden. We've been cast out of Eden away from fellowship with God. If we were to be in his presence, it would destroy us, for we are sinners and he is holy. But this is contrary to how we were created. We were created to bond, to attach, to attach to each other, to attach to our parents. When a baby is born, he learns how to attach, how to make a connection from the attentiveness of his parents. I've been studying the studies on attachment and what happens when a baby doesn't attach for whatever reason with his parents in the very, very, very early formative years. When attachment doesn't happen, the child will struggle with relationships, with trust, with bonding his whole life. But in another sense, this is the human condition. We were born to attach to God, to fellowship with him, to live with him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify him. But all of us are like these lepers cast out of God's society. All of us have attachment issues when it comes to our fellowship with God. It affects everything we do. To be cast out of God's presence tears at the heart of who we are as human beings. And we still long for that fellowship. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus Christ overcoming that alienation and calling us to himself. Restoring that relationship so that we can have relationship with others. And how important that bonding is, that society is, that fellowship. We all struggle with it. When I was a child, I attended 
a fairly long, large congregation. There was about 250 members when I was growing up. There was a lot of room for us to spread out afterwards. And I spent a lot of time observing. Uh, I was a weird child. And I observed people and how they interacted with each other from a very, very young age. And I noticed if you have a large group of people and they're all talking to each other, they'll form circles. I don't know if you've noticed that. Everybody forms circles and they have these conversations in these circles. And you could divide people up into several different types based on your observation of these circles. The first type were those who easily fit into circles and paid attention to outsiders and would make space if somebody came to join in the conversation. They had an openness about their demeanor and their body posturing and would welcome people into that circle. There were those who easily fit into circles but would actively shift their bodies to exclude outsiders. I would notice this because my brother was like this. If I tried to join a circle that he was in, he would purposely shift his body and turn his back to me to make sure I was excluded from the circle. Eventually I would give up. There are those who fit into the circles that are oblivious to the drama that goes on in large groups. And then there's the outsiders. I generally would go out and sit in the car and wait for things to get done. This reminded me of this recently when Susan and I were at a wine tasting. We were talking to the wine, the the guy that made the wine, and he was explaining his wine to us. And then this large group came in, and he stepped back to welcome them into our little circle. But they moved and shifted their bodies to turn their backs to us so that we would be excluded. It's painful to be excluded from a group. I've tried to make it a point to make sure that no one around me feels excluded by my body language. Sometimes I'm more successful than other times. If you've ever been closed out of a circle by those that you love, then you know what that pain is like. It's always affected me. Oftentimes it's easier to stay out than to risk the rejection of a closed circle or the back of someone that you love. Oftentimes when a visitor remarks that a church is unwelcoming, this is what they're picking up on. Anyway, as painful as that is in human society, it's the reality of the human condition. We have all been shut out of the fellowship with which we were created. The attachment with God was broken. And now all of our relationships are broken. The Pharisees of every age believe that they're the insiders. They've got a special track. And they're the ones that move their backs to exclude the sinners from the circle. And to illustrate this, what is more unclean and unrighteous than a leper? These ten represent the human condition. They have a disease that excludes them from the society of God's fellowship. God's face was withdrawn and the blessing of his smiling countenance was taken away by sin. And this is us. And the first step of the gospel is for us to recognize that. How great our sin and misery is. We have to understand that in order to understand the comfort of the gospel. But this is what Jesus came to do. So they cry out. The prayer of pain and helplessness. Lord Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Notice the simplicity. 
No traps or snares laid down. No conditions. No bureaucracy to go through. Some of us know the struggle of trying to get through the bureaucracy of the health system. With our health struggles over the years, we have found many wonderful doctors. The steps, the levels, the conditions, the paperwork, the boxes, and the bureaucrats that all need to be checked and appeased before you can see the doctor are sometimes quite overwhelming. Referrals are sent and they're lost. They're put into a stack. But then when you go through the stack, if they put the wrong number in the wrong box, it's sent back to the first doctor, and then it gets put into another stack and lost in that stack. And we spend all of our time on the phone trying to convince somebody to please dig through their stack again and find out where that referral has been lost. And once you get through all of that, then it goes on the desk of the doctor's assistant that you need to see. And they frequently lose it, put it in their stack, we'll get to it eventually, or deny it. But the great physician isn't like that. The ten call out to him, and he answers them. This was the problem with the Roman system of salvation that the reformers spoke against. They surrounded the mercy of God with a whole level of bureaucracy. You had to go through the priests and the archbishops and the cardinals and the popes and the saints and Mary and all of the steps. Every generation seeks to add the bureaucrats back into our salvation. Rome had the whole series of steps that you needed to take. When Martin Luther studied the scripture, he saw that the veil has been taken away and we have direct access to call out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us. And today what grieves me in reformed circles is to see that hierarchy coming back. The gatekeepers teaching, for example, that the man of the home is the priest for the family and no one comes to God except through the husband and father. So often we begin to resemble the cults. And we throw stumbling blocks in front of souls, one right after the other. One rule right after another. Be like this, or we will cut off your access to God. But the gospel is Jesus paid it all. Every sacrifice is completed. The priesthood is abolished. The temple is destroyed. Jesus opens his arms wide. He desires all of us to enter that circle of fellowship. He calls us to it. He says, I will cleanse you. I will forgive your sins. I will invite you into the family of God. This couldn't be more clear than in Hebrews chapter 10. Well, the writer says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's that imagery of uncleanness again. But now we've been washed, we've been cleansed by the blood and spirit of Christ. And so the lepers cry out directly to Jesus. Not to his admins, not to his gatekeepers, not filling out the forms in triplicate and making sure they get every box checked right, every number put in right. Right. 
They just cry out for mercy. And he sees them. He hears them. And he gives them something to do. The human heart loves to have things to do. He gives them something to do. It's from the law. Go show yourselves to the priest. It was the priest that examined the leprous man and said, you're unclean, get out. It was also the priest that would examine him again and say, look at that, you've been cured, you're back in. And the old covenant had not yet been done away with, for Jesus had not yet risen from the dead, and he's not yet ascended into heaven. And so the temple and the priesthood were still standing. And so the old order is still standing. And so Jesus tells them to show themselves to the local priest. If the local priest certified that the leprosy was gone, they would again join society. Jesus is opening that door for them to re-enter society. He's having mercy on them. He tells them to go. And to their credit, they believe him and they go. On their way, they are healed. Every one of them. All ten of them. Just like Psalm 103 says, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And one of them, who happens to be the Samaritan of the bunch, is so overwhelmed with gratitude that he forgets his errand. He turns around and rushes back and falls on his face with awe and joy and glorifies God with a loud voice. The rest continue on their way to the priest. And Jesus remarks, where's, where's the other nine? Didn't I cleanse ten, ten of you? And he calls him a stranger, a foreigner. One who is not part of the seed of Abraham. One with mixed blood. A Samaritan was one who was not really of Israel. He couldn't trace his lineage back. Mostly mixed with Babylonian blood or other Gentiles that had come in. He's a stranger, as Paul says, an alien to the covenant promises. But he is the one that loudly praises God and rushes back to see Jesus. Why didn't the other nine come back? Well, quite frankly, the scripture doesn't tell us. There could be all sorts of reasons. When you read the commentaries, they speculate. Some of them develop whole sermons out of the reasons why the other nine didn't come back. Well, they weren't thankful. Yeah. We don't really know that. They might have been very thankful, but they wanted to complete their mission. We could speculate, as some do, that they felt entitled to Jesus' miracles, and so they went as people who were entitled. Some go so far as to say that they weren't saved, and therefore they didn't have thankful hearts. But we don't know that. None of that is in the text. In the context of the chapter, though, I think this is the point. They were Israelites. And Israelites of that day were thoroughly trained in the doctrine of the Israelites. They had been trained from their youth to be good slaves, to do what they were told. And so they were being good slaves and that they were doing what they were told. They were doing it with what was their duty to do. 
Jesus told them to go to the priests, so to the priests they will go. Obedience is good. In fact, God wants obedient children. But he wants obedient children. Our catechism teaches us that we are to be thankful to God for our redemption. It's very clear in Scripture. Obedience is a very big part of that thankfulness, which is very clear in Scripture. But without prayer and gratitude from the heart, we're simply acting like good slaves. Jesus is teaching us to look higher. Look at the table set for us in the presence of our enemies. Feast with Christ. Laugh, sing, fall on your face, rejoice, shout, lose your dignity. Can you imagine this man cured from this horrible disease, entering society, so tremendously blessed by God, falling on his face before Jesus and glorifying God with a loud voice, and then going home to point out everyone else's flaws? Or hasn't his heart been made completely new? which is the point of this chapter. Last week I concluded that when all of our faith, when our faith is even as small as a seed of mustard, we can overcome any obstacles, and the result is that we treat each other with compassion and mercy. And our longing is to bring all to the feet of the Savior. And now we see it in action. This man has fallen on his face before Jesus. He isn't going to be the gatekeeper now, throwing snares in front of people, but he will be telling them all about Jesus, inviting them to the feast. He isn't going to live in harsh grudges against his neighbor because he was once a leper and now he's clean. This is the obedience that God delights in. Yeah, the man will go and show himself to the priest. I have no doubt about that. He's going to re-enter in society, and the way to do that is through the priest, and that's what Jesus told him to do. And yet, this obedience won't be a burden to him, won't be the grudging service of the older brother in the parable of the, good, of the prodigal son. It will be out of joy and gratitude. He will be obeying the voice of Jesus while skipping and singing and laughing and dancing and glorifying God with a loud voice. His circle will be wide because he was made clean and welcomed into the presence of God. Contrast this Samaritan leper who's been healed and welcomed into God's presence. Contrast him with the leaders of the Jews. And you aren't doing that right. Those are the wrong sort of clothes. Those are the wrong sort of people. Those are the wrong sort of sacrifices. You're taking too many steps on the Sabbath day. You're not doing it right. This is a heart that's not been set free. This is a heart that's enslaved by fear and sin and the slavery of trying to earn enough credits for a stingy God to throw you a bone. When you view God like that, nothing is ever good enough. To borrow a story from Philip Riken, he tells about a boy ripped from the arms of his mother by a tornado. The mother cries out to God to have mercy and return her boy to her. 
And then her boy falls from the sky and lands safely in her arms. She looks the boy over and then looks back up to heaven and says, "Um, Lord, he had a hat. It's the attitude of someone who hasn't quite grasped the concept of mercy. Nothing's ever quite right. Jesus healed ten. Only one came back to rejoice. His obedience will now be marked with love and joy. And everything will change. As for the other nine, perhaps they'll come back later. Perhaps they'll stay hardened. Perhaps they'll regret their choice and change their mind. We don't know. I don't want to speculate on what the scripture is silent about. I know oftentimes we relate more with the nine than we do with the one. But I will say this. The scripture tells us every good and every perfect gift comes from God, our Father. The food that we eat, the wine, the oil, the rain, the harvest, the fall leaves, the pumpkin spice, the roast pork with apples in the oven, apple cinnamon donuts, banana cream pie, aged scotch, small batch beer, a good wine, the lips of your spouse, the smell of her hair, the laughter of children, the voice of the child who shouts out, hey, oh, grandpa, and comes running into your arms, the smell of cut grass, the sound of an oboe played perfectly. All of those come from our Heavenly Father. And even when there's adversity, when the gatekeepers lose the referrals yet one more time, when the pain gets worse and no end is in sight, when enemies attack and put you on defense, when friends cut you off and close their circle, even then we are reminded that we're simply on the journey. And even in pain, Jesus hasn't abandoned us. He's taking us to where he is And he reminds us that he often walked the road alone. He is good when we are rich. He's good when we are in adversity. His goodness isn't in the abstract, but in the reality. He's good to me. If we just take a minute and think about the beauty that he has surrounded each one of us with. We will see that the adversity isn't worthy to be compared to his riches that he has abundantly showered me with. The problem is we all have attachment disorders. We're so blessed by God. We need our eyes open that we might see it. The curse of the covenant came on Jesus so that the blessings of the covenant might come on us. This blessing is on all who are in Christ. When God's good gifts are showered on us, when the leprosy is taken away and we feast on roasted lamb, we're blessed. But even when the fig tree fails and the olive tree doesn't blossom, we're still blessed because we're in Christ. Habakkuk saw this when he said, Though the fruit tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, and though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on high hills. 
Because the blessing that God gives us isn't really about the good things on this earth, although there are plenty of those, and God will make us see good in the land of the living. But the true blessing is about rejoicing at the feet of Jesus, sitting in his presence, falling on our faces before him and shouting out in joy, knowing that the day is going to come when all of our sicknesses, our uncleannesses, our sins, even our attachment disorders will all be healed and we will safely rest in his bosom forever. And when those attachment issues are taken away, we can always begin to relate to others as we were created to, with safety, mercy, and joy. Dancing and singing and feasting and rejoicing together in the presence of God without fear all the days of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you who heal all diseases, heal ours, we pray. Above all, the disease of our attachments where we are untrusting, hasty. We are judgmental and harsh with one another and with you. Teach us, Father, to open our eyes to see your goodness upon us, whether in riches or in poverty, whether in rain or dry season, whether in drought or whether in plentiful harvests. We pray that you would bless us with rain, that you would bless our harvests, that you would bless our work, bless our congregation, and draw us always to the feet of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.